GM friends, and welcome to the Future of Gaming podcast. My name is Nico. This is part two of our semi-deep dive slash conversation slash it's like we're at a bar having a chat about fully on-chain games and autonomous worlds. We have David Amor, who is the CEO and co-founder at Playments. We have Matt Dion, who is an autonomous worlds researcher and the author of the Dark Tunnels newsletter. And we have Will Robinson, who is the on-chain games guy at Alliance DAO. And that's a Web3 accelerator. So for this conversation, we're going to assume that you listened to last week's episode where we set the stage, we had a chat, we talked about a bunch of things, we left a bunch of threads unraveled, unpulled on, and now we're going to pull on those Perfect. for a bit. Yeah. Um, maybe first, I was, I seem to be, I have been the only representative of the four of us at Gamescom. I felt like I was the very only representative of on-chain games at Gamescom, but there were two others I found, and we <laughs> hung out at the Fogdown meetup. Um, so that was good. Um, maybe a little bit of a, a vibe check for all those interested. It felt like everyone, all, like all of the founders I met were struggling to fundraise, were doing down or flat rounds, um, seed extensions, and um yeah it was was generally like it was it was kind of tough um people that were not in web3 were like huh is web3 still a thing is is blockchain still a thing does it still exist isn't bitcoin like five dollars right now um and that was generally the vibe um but yeah we we had a good time hanging out um refining you know business models i think you know uh, but, but, i think uh, there is still capital there's not a lot of funds that are Go ahead, I was going to ask, do you mean in Web3 or do you just mean in games in general when you talk about founders? I would say both Both is right. tough. I would say Web3, Web3 is tougher. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah so, yeah. yeah. I saw a few pitch decks of companies that were pitching Web3 projects that did not mention Web3 anymore. Um, right. Still kind of used it almost all of the time. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was the, the general vibe check um overall yeah i think you know things were good the yeah but very little web3 to be honest i'm curious nico like as an investor and maybe you have some insight here too will like if you had to ballpark a percentage of pitch decks during the bull run uh to now that included web3 as part of the pitch but Ultimately, they pivoted away, or it was just a means to like raise a little bit more money. What percentage do you think of Web three pitches that came across your desk were that? From my perspective, it's it's difficult to give a, a good answer because I don't really follow up with many of these teams. Most of these teams, even yeah, they probably didn't get investment. Yes, and and, and so yeah. J Generally, if a team is using a technology just as a way to fundraise, you notice it's quite fast. And so those are teams that we would never invest in. Um, I would say that you know, of some of the companies that we invested in, they're selling their game you know, in a way where there's no Web3 mentioned, but mm -hmm. it, is, it will exist down the line. Um, and so, yeah, hard for me to put a number on there, but I think... You know, there's probably a significant amount that are not using it anymore. Um, but what I, what I would say is, is most of them are 
um, are still using it, but are less loud about it. Okay. Have yeah, you I think from world? my perspective. Oh, yeah. So we get uh, thousands of applications a cohort. Um, and obviously, we can't follow up, like Nico said, with all the people that we're going to reject. But with the people we do admit, we can keep track. And like 10 to 15% will pivot away from crypto because we're also pretty focused on founders who care about the technology and want to see where it goes. And also, if you don't stick with your project, how are you going to develop the domain expertise you need to find the secrets you're going to leverage to beat your competitors? I think this is a Ben Horowitz quote, right? Companies are founded on secrets. And if you're not, um, if you're going to, you know, jump from project to project, you're going to just quickly realize that you'll never develop enough secrets. Yeah, uh, the but Nico brought up something really interesting, which was there was a pivot away, but a temporary pivot away in games from crypto. It's like really unpopular right now. The market's down. There's no reason to include it. But we did all this work to sort of make crypto part of the game at some point that we're not going to like just get rid of it. It'll be our ace in the hole during the next bull run is the idea. And I think that's totally reasonable uh, as a way of framing your your company's tech stack to investors and, and why you would be temporarily pivoting away. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, it was a good idea to skip uh, Gamescom? Because I was in two minds as to whether or not I should have gone. So what would you say, having now been, Nico? I think I've noticed, David, you've been down the rabbit hole and you are like the cool kid that doesn't want to hang out with the non-cool kids anymore. And to you, the cool kids are building on-chain games. And so yeah, yeah, for you, okay. anyone that does not not building on-chain games, they don't even speak the same language as you do at this point. And so, you know, as it would have been only the four of us, and as much as I like hanging out with you, I wouldn't want you next to me, you know, for a full week. Um, I think you're fine. <laughs> so I got two. two Nico, thoughts. what one is the invest? Oh, go, go ahead, David. All right, I was going to say two thoughts. Right. So one is that you're right. So I'm going to Token uh, 2049 in Singapore, where there's lots of on-chain game stuff happening. I can hang out with people doing the same thing. But I'm just in this little echo chamber. At some point, somebody needs to get outside the echo chamber and get to E3. Well, that's still going. Get to Dice. Get to Gamescom. Get to these sort of. Um, general games industry events and spread the word. I, I can't forever just be contained in this little silo of on-chain game makers. So even though I think I'd have a more fun week in Singapore, uh, maybe it's my job to, to get outside the bubble. Do you know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah, I think we talked about this last week. I tried to do that at GDC, but they didn't re-invite me the second time. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, I think... Um... I think there's a there's a there's a world where the next bull run in in crypto, which is bound to happen, or at least if we look at what happened in the past, you know, will happen at some point. Um, there's a decent chance that you know suddenly everyone will be into on-chain games because um, it's new, yeah. it's fresh, and by then hopefully we'll have you know something that more than ten people at the same time play. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe we can get to fifty people. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, that'd <laughs> no. be amazing. <laughs> Good. 
Nico, right. what's, what's an investor's wet dream in Web2 right now? Is it some like merge game targeted at some like no- novel audience, uh, um, but like it's just the same old? Like, what do, what do you want? Like, an so out of let me, Web2. Let me, let me take a stab at this. I, I feel like I know the answer. It's a AAA, uh, X Riot, X Blizzard, uh, MMO, <laughs> social, uh, cozy, UGC elements, um, fantastical <laughs> gameplay. You know, uh, am I like, am I on target? Dude, those are 10, 10 of our latest investments, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say that um, mobile is tough right now, Will. Uh, just because of IDFA, it's it, we haven't done that many mobile can games. Can we just right do now. merge on the Xbox then? We can. We, we can. Um, we will. Yes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's, it would also depend on, um, yeah, who you're talking to, right? Because I've, I've been spending some time listening to more generalist investors and the way they think about some of the investments that they make. Um, and when you think about investments like, you know, Twitch or maybe investors, investments like Riot, you know, those were, those were, those series A, I, I think, and beyond were, and maybe even seed rounds were led by generalist investors. And all of those were like fundamental shifts in user behavior that were capitalized upon in the perfect way. And so what I'm trying to think about is how do we see some of these more general culture trends and how do these translate in investable opportunities in the wider entertainment space? How can games capitalize on some of the, you know, trends that we're seeing? One trend that I've seen, that I've seen and I've mentioned this to maybe a few of you already is ice cream so good. You know, that the girl on TikTok who's like essentially acting like an, as an NPC and people just throw money at her because she's famous and they, if they can pay a bit of money to have her do something, they feel really powerful. Like, how can we start seeing that translate within games and in a way it's already been done? Um, but so to answer your question, Matt, I'm trying to find um, the convergence of a bunch of cultural trends and see how they line up and in, 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 like, yeah, in, in the entertainment sector more broadly. Um, that's, that's kind of like finding an answer there, and, and it's very hard to find, um, very hard to come up with, is, um, I guess... Maybe, yeah, my way dream in this space. But, as an but investor. neither of you mentioned AI, and that surprised me. Are we just like, it seems like venture would want to bet that AI would lead to some kind of new category defining yes. game. I, I would say that AI could could be, a, it, there's a good chance that AI is a part of that, yes. Yeah. Okay. But um, enough about AI. That's that's for all of the investors right now to to think about. Um, we're here for on-chain games, autonomous worlds. Um, kind of related to AI, a thread that we ended up on um, at the end of our previous conversation was bots and the problem of bots. Um, perhaps, Will, why don't you walk us through why botting will be a like an essential part of on-chain games? Um, and how you think about solving for it or maybe embracing it. Sure. So there's a couple of motivations. One, we expect that on-chain games will be financialized in some way. There'll be a way to make money with them uh, or to move money with them. And this is not unlike Web 2 games today. In Counter-Strike, you can earn skins and those skins can be sold. And so you think about why isn't Counter-Strike currently botted, and it's because there's a sufficient amount of control over the front end that you can prevent bots with anti-cheating techniques, 
and there's an arms race between the cheaters of Counter-Strike and the anti-cheaters that are trying to prevent them from operating. And then players also get to police each other and report one another for botting. Because if you could bot Counter-Strike, let's just say you could, it wouldn't be fun for anybody. The bots would just automatically shoot everyone in the head all the time. Um, And so the bots would end up only playing the bots. The bots would produce all these skins, but it's not clear at long who would be buying them. Uh, because people wouldn't feel like the game was a fair game to play anymore. Uh, The problem on the crypto side is, by definition, a fully on-chain game will uh, not have a front-end that is canonical, or that is at least necessary. So you can rewrite the code to interact with the blockchain game, right? So... You can, for a user who's maybe not familiar with like changing front ends, um, in Skyrim, you can mod it to look any way you want. Uh, in World of Warcraft, you can change your heads up display to have the health of all these different people, new buttons. I mean, there's just not enough buttons in vanilla World of Warcraft, you know, UI. So you needed to like create all this new interface. And that's with the permission of the game company to like let you change it to that degree. But you could never mod a game to remove the cheating component. Um, or the anti-cheating component, right? But in fully on-chain games, cheating's fair game. And so if there's money to be made, bots will be made, and then bots will dominate. Yeah, and I maybe it's worth clarifying that um, you you don't have to use the game client uh, that we provide. So in our downstream game, somebody could build a client that runs on mobile, or they could, in theory, play the whole game through issuing commands on Etherscan. It's not necessary to use our interface. Now, I think the majority of people will be using our interface because we've made the graphics look nice and polished it and created a good UI UX, but there's nothing stopping somebody creating code that interacts directly with the blockchain and completely circumvents uh, our game client. And that's that's not how Web2 games work generally. You can't you can't create a piece of code, as best I know, particularly easily in Counter-Strike to, to talk directly with with the servers there. So let's say it creates a new problem for, for fully on-chain games uh, that, that you don't have to use the official client. But I think then it's um, a task of seeing if you can turn that problem into an opportunity. And for some examples of this happening in the wild, in Dark Forest, you had Ansgar Dietrich, a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation, rewrite the client so that the transactions would be parallelized instead of serialized. And by rewrite the client, I mean he deleted like two awaits in the JavaScript. But <laughs> but then all of a sudden he got to transmit way more transactions than anyone else and won the round. Uh, another... Uh, maybe example of this is the head of research technology, like the CTO of Paradigm, one of the most prestigious investors in crypto, took like time out of his summer to just rewrite the entire Dark Forest front end to be headless so that you could directly through Rust, like cast moves into the world from a a command line interface. And the idea was that bots would be able to use this interface at a much greater uh, speeds because actually visualizing the game was quite taxing on the machine. So just get rid of all the visualizations and all the buttons and make a headless client. Uh, You could do more faster. Uh, So yeah, these are just two examples of that effect. 
I think this this all boils down to two problems. One is that players and bots cannot be distinguished from each other in an on-chain game. Um, and the second is that you can't guarantee that um, a player is unique. So, you know, I could make an account or I could essentially make 100 bots and I have them all work together. And so every game needs to assume that every player um, is a bot and that, you know, there will be humans that use multiple bots to gain an edge if possible. Um, you know, this is known, this, this has been known from the beginning. Um, will have you seen interesting um, solutions to that to that problem um, in, in your time in this space? So there's, there's a couple of approaches. So Mithrium is trying to solve this bot problem by making the game very heavy on diplomacy. And it sees this as solving two problems. One is uh, transaction throughput. The more of the game that happens in the talking part between people, the less the chain needs to actually worry about updating its state. And the more the game is about talking and negotiating, the less likely it is that bots will do well at scale. Uh, that's that's a theory. Uh, it turns out that like bots are actually really good at playing diplomacy, uh, and the chat GPT is quite good at negotiating <laughs> appropriate paths to victory. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. Uh, another thing that you can try to do, and this is something crypto has been working on for a long time, is is Sybil resistant mechanics. So if uh, you make it so that it costs money per account, and that if and that you are more powerful the more money you have in your account, um, then splitting ten dollars ten ways or putting all ten dollars into one account has no impact in your game design. Uh, and that might be just another way to pre prevent civil resistance. And that's how crypto does it. It's just like you need a certain amount of money per account. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there are another, other ways. Yeah. Okay. Another example could be you have to own an NFT to play and mm -hmm. NFTs cost money. And so you, you're not going to buy 100 NFTs or you might. But um, if, the, if the return on investment is at this point not high enough for you to warrant the purchase of so many uh, NFTs, then um, essentially it's it's demotivating it from an economic perspective. Yeah, and, and the na naive approach might be to say, well, let's just like use scanned eyeballs, right? So there's this WorldCoin project mm -hmm. that's got these silver spheres. You can stick your eyeball onto it and then you get, uh, you know, guarantee on a certain chain that you're a real person. Uh, but you can just tell a robot to pilot your real person account. Um, and if you need to buy eyeballs, well, there's a bunch of farms in India here that are already scooping up people off the street to get their eyeball scanned so they can sell their eyeballs to you. Uh, so I don't think that this is like a sustainable solution. It certainly doesn't prevent bots. It might just prevent um, a Sybil attack is what we call it, mm -hmm. right? When one person has many identities. Yeah. Um, one thing I'd like to have your thoughts on is um, I've seen projects that are seeing the blockchain as solely a way to ensure transparency and especially transparency about scarcity of assets. Um, and so, you know, at the beginning of this, Will, you explained that in the way I look at it is you have the blockchain as a sort of, you know, entity that exists and any UI user interface, any front end is a window into that world. And you can use any window you want. Um, but what if we used 
permissioned windows, as in the user interface is not a thin layer, but the user interface has some, you know, bot resistance and Sybil resistance. And the reason it, it works together with the blockchain is not for permissionless building, um, but more just as a way to be sure that, you know, everyone can look on the on the blockchain can look at the game. You might not be able to make moves without the front end, but you are able to verify the scarcity of certain assets, which gives them more economic value. And so I guess then my question is, um, first, did that make sense? And two, are we talking about still a on-chain game at that point? Um, I mean, well, one I'll thing is... Right, yeah, I, all I was going to say is, we have a test for the games that we build, which is can the game keep going if we were to be struck down by lightning and playment didn't exist anymore? And that's sort of our decentralization test. I suppose what you describe there when you talk about an official client that you have to go through, then if the company that makes that official client it isn't uh, around anymore, then does that prevent the game from working? Because if it does, then you've got this point of centralization, which is that there is an official client that's necessary to view that game world, in which case you, you don't have a fully decentralized game. So it may be, I mean, there's degrees of decentralization. Maybe it's a problem, maybe it's not. We, we try and be quite strict about that. But I'm always cautious about decentralized games that add a, part, a piece of... De centralization because then i think that fundamentally changes what the game is and and i think that's what you just described so i'd be cautious of that mm -hmm. so let's say only one client could work but the client was open sourced and the anti-bot stuff was open source uh so that anybody could run it at least and uh, and as long as the client's anti-botting section was tested as working correctly, it could work. I, I don't believe you could prove in a transaction sent to the chain that it was working correctly to the degree that you want. Um, but if you if you could, uh, then maybe you could get somewhere. And maybe there is research to do in proving that the behavior of players wasn't bot behaviors. But generally... This has to be security through obscurity. You can't tell the bot people how you're detecting the bots because then they can just circumvent the way you're detecting them, right? They use like very specific weirdo heuristics that if you could know them, you would just build around them. Uh, so if there is one very thick client that's doing all the policing um, and signs off on every transaction that goes to the chain and the smart contract will not accept a transaction unless it came from this central server that signed off on it, because that central server has to hold the private keys, um, then either the game is live or dead, um, but you could make it at least uncorruptible. I think you could make it so that the underlying framework on-chain wouldn't produce erroneous results. The, the worry is that the core client would mint extra NFTs. Right? So if there's only one company that can touch the client, then they get to decide, hey, the player X gets five more NFTs than usual. Right, And I know that we said there'd only be this many NFTs, but look, we changed it. Right, yeah. And if I'm the only person who controls the client, I can also tell that client to start talking to a new smart contract and coerce everybody into working on a new smart contract. Uh, so it's really hard to like 
really carry over any benefits. You'll get transparency, and you'll be able to transparently see the central game developers cheating you. But generally what we don't want is transparency. We want trustlessness. We don't want to have to trust the central game developer. I mean, a far better solution... And I, I, I've always preferred to do it this way is to embrace the bots. I know it's a really easy thing to say. It's a hard thing to, to design for. But I, you know, maybe I'll put it to Matt in a second. But like, it would be great to think of a game that benefited from bots being there. And certainly in, in our first game, we had bots. You know, it, it was a, somebody built a bot that interfaced directly with the blockchain and, and it was uproar with people playing the game because this didn't seem fair anymore. But I think looking back, it was the most interesting thing that happened when we were playing that game. So it, you know, it felt like a big deal at the time. There's lots of drama about it, but games with drama are great. And if somebody's introduced a bot that does this, then is it, is it a feature or is it a bug? Is it what the game is that people are trying to abuse what tools they have to their, uh, that are available to them to try and win at the game? Now, I don't even want to get to a point where you have to be a developer to create great bots to play the game, which I think at some level will happen with Dark Forest. But I'd love to have a design that where humans had the edge but maybe could use bots in a clever way. Can you think of a design that would do that, Matt? Um. I'm not sure about the humans having the edge part just yet, but I mean, we've seen some, some games that uh, have emerged where you have to play as a bot and the human input is in programming the bot to whatever strategy that you want to execute. So zero X Monaco is, is one example of that where you've got your race car smart contract that you're uh, programming a strategy into um, there is uh, Shoshin is another game that's um, in the works right now, which is like a fighting game slash auto battler. And like, you know, auto battlers exist outside of on-chain games as well. So like there's at least some directional evidence that, you know, that this kind of gameplay works um, and it will just be up to the the builders like you all to kind of um, come up with innovative designs that, that play with that. And, you know, part of it is... Um, you know, if the bot is the the player character, right, and if the challenge is getting humans to program the bots, then there needs to be this like um, uh, simplification in UX for non-technical players to be able to do this, right? You, like you were talking about how Dark Forest kind of devolved into this programming battle, um, which is fine, but that's not accessible to 99% of uh, players that we might hope to reach as game makers. And so if you can get to some sort of like low code, no code solution, which is kind of what Shoshin is doing with their like uh, the way the way that you sort of program your fighter in that game. Um, it's like um, sort of got like a priority ranking of tasks that you do in certain scenarios, like kind of a, a bunch of like nested if then statements. Um, you know, that, that's one way to approach it is to make it more accessible um, to non-technical players. I, I think we'll I, that. I also think, and we mentioned it before, that I would hope there's a game design that relies on social coordination and strategy and outwitting and just traits that historically, at least, bots have a harder time replicating. Um, and it would be nice to integrate that kind of gameplay so that, okay, yeah, bots are useful in some cases, but you're still going to need a human to take charge at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect we'll be having humans pilot several bots. And I think, Matt, that the more low-code you go or no-code you go, 
the more you just have to program a bot that plays the no-code game. It just kicks the problem <laughs> down the road, right? There's a is not 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 a hard solution there from mm-hmm. from from my perspective. But you know, there are great games that are bot focused. Like I love watching battle bots as a kid. I love watching different engineering teams bring their robots to an arena and watch them fight and see them rip each other apart with chainsaws and flippers and flamethrowers. And I also see a world where bots are the players and humans are the builders, right? We build new levels and new worlds for them. I don't know if you've gotten to play Totally Accurate Battle Simulator on Steam, but it's a game where you just like pit bots against each other in different maps, and it's really fun, and it's about being creative. And it would be cool to have just bots playing bots in this space. And I also think, and this is where I get really, where people get really antsy about my views on fully on-chain games, is if you definancialize them, then the bots don't need to be there. It's no one who needs to compete for no money. No one's spending engineering team dollars to win fake games that -hmm. don't have value. So, I mean, if you have a governance token that captures value and manages play, and the game isn't about farming some currency, and it's really just about having fun with your friends on chain and building stuff together, maybe you don't need to worry about bots. To, to your point, Will, about like kicking the can down the road, that's why I was so hesitant to say like, you know, optimize for humans, because then it's just a optimization problem for the bot. Like, how do I <laughs> come up with the optimal strategy to complete this race or, or whatever the case may be? Um, however, uh, you raise an interesting point, which is um, you mentioned um, totally accurate battle simulator. And I have sort of a pet thesis that simulation games are very well suited to fully on-chain games. And the example I like to point to is Dwarf Fortress. Now, very complex simulation, of course, and like there are challenges in putting that on-chain, but where it, it makes a lot of sense to me is whether it's humans or bots you know, playing the characters, it, it's, they're, they're largely just simulated behavior. You don't control every minute action, and the fun comes in the emergent storytelling that comes out of this world that is largely simulated. So you can like kind of control different aspects. You can tell them what to build, but you have this emergent narrative that comes out of the complexity of the simulation. Um, and it's like the human um, uh, sort of um, storytelling and coordination that happens around that, that I think is really interesting. And that actually happens off chain, but it's dictated by the numbers and statistics and simulations that happen immutably on chain. Yeah, so you, the entertainment is coming from what happened in the game rather than what you did in the game? Uh, it's a combination of both, but it's right. it's like, okay, these things happened in the simulation, but they weren't all entirely planned. And it's like, well, isn't that neat how that happened? Like, It's like with The Sims or, mm-hmm. or any other simulation game. Like, It has a very um, simple set of rules and conditions that you're trying to optimize against, but it's the way that the the sims or the dwarfs or whatever go about it in the simulation um, and the meaning that we as humans attach to those actions um, that makes it interesting and compelling and like surprising in different ways. Yeah. yeah. The, the problem, Matt, is that you, you said it, is that you can't put these games on chain. For every NPC we put on chain, that's one human who didn't get to play. Right, because there's just only so much bandwidth to do calculations that if we're calculating for non-humans, we're in deep trouble. So you would need to run your game off-chain 
uh, hopefully in a circuit, like a, a zero knowledge circuit, and then push a proof back to chain that the game that the result is the correct result of that initial st starting point. And that's like fantasy tech that we might see in two three years. What if counter arguments will? What if the NPCs living are the game, and we're just the audience? And maybe Matt, you can tell us a bit more about miles and how they potentially tie in here. Uh, I'm getting really geeky here. Apologies. Do you want to respond first, Will? Like, because I'm going to go off on a tangent here about miles. Yeah, look, I think that. Um, games are played by people trying to overcome objectives to reach goals and that the overcoming of those objectives is intrinsically valuable to them. If I'm watching a simulation of NPCs doing shit, that's fun and fine, but that is not a game. Uh, that is, you know, it's like watching soccer is not playing soccer. That's okay. I think we could be entertainment and fun to see. So it's an autonomous world that is not necessarily gamey. But what if it is interactive? Okay, well, then the amount of NPCs there are is directly in opposition to the number of people who can interact with it. Maybe. But not I'm not sure that's true. Like, yeah. what, is, what, is, what is fantasy football, you know? No, I'm just saying, like, there's 100 state changes you can have. If 90 of them are NPCs making state changes, then you get 10 humans, right, who get to make the other state changes. Uh, that's all. So it's just, like, the more math you want to do on chain, the less players you get. I, I see your point. Um, so uh, just to, to, to back up to Nico's request about Miles, I'll just kind of introduce this concept so we can talk about it because this is what we're skirting around a little bit. Um, so Miles are massively interactive live events. Uh, there's a company called Genvid Entertainment, Genvid Technologies, that's kind of specializing in this right now, off-chain. Um, but the idea is that um, the core... Um, simulation of the game happens um, somewhere centrally. It's like a, in the cloud, let's say. Typically, it's, it's cloud technology, and then it's streamed out to players um, in the same way that you would stream a, a Twitch stream. Uh, so the you don't have to worry about, like, you know, latency on, like, a fast Twitch game or something like that. It, all the gameplay is happening in one place. It's streamed to the viewers, but there's kind of like minimal interactivity for a massive audience, the M and Miles, uh, to be able to influence the outcome of these live events. So they're like game-ish, but they're more like entertainment. So a couple examples. Um, the, the canonical example for Rival Peak was, uh, sorry, it was called Rival Peak. It was from Genvid and it was, they did it with Facebook. It was like, um, kind of like the show Lost, um, but like a, you know, simulated 3D version. Uh, and then the viewers could, you know, interact in different, really simple ways like voting or little mini games to influence the outcome, which characters survive, which ones don't, what do they do? They've repeated this formula with like Walking Dead now. They're going to do a Silent Hill one coming out soon. So that's kind of like how it's been done in Web 2. If you want a Web 3 analog, a really simple one, um, you may have heard uh, there was this um, thing that happened a while ago called Chain Faces Arena, uh, which I was like really fascinated by. Um, basically, there were these NFTs called Chain Faces, just like ASCII art uh, of like an emoji. Um, and you could... Put the NFT into a, you could lock it into a smart contract, which was the arena, quote unquote, and every X number of blocks, some percentage of the NFTs that were locked into this contract would be burned. They were killed in the arena. You lose it forever. Um, your, 
in, the interactivity was really limited. It was your choice is basically one: do I enter the arena at all? If I'm in, then I only have one other choice to make, which is: do I stick around for the next round and hope that I survive, or do I pull my NFT out of the arena and take my share of the prize pool? Basically, um, so the prize pool grows every round as more NFTs are eliminated, uh, and the last person standing gets the whole thing that hasn't been withdrawn. So that's like a really simple version of what this might look like on chain. As I said, very limited interactivity. Um, but this is where we're where Nico and I get like really fascinated with stuff like miles um, to the point around like, you know, fantasy sports and simulations. One um, mile that uh, me and Nico are particularly uh, really enjoyed, which is no longer around anymore, but was very big during COVID was called blaze ball. Um, I think I've, I've probably talked to all of you about this by now because I tell everyone about blaze ball. Um, but it's basically like a simulation of a baseball game, uh, multiple baseball games that happen. Uh, and it's just a UI. There's, uh, there's no like visual representation of the game. It's like a box score basically and a game log like you might see on ESPN. But it's, very, it's like absurd, right? So, so the games get simulated Every week is one season. At the end of each season, uh, the players, you and I, we are just viewers of this simulated baseball league that's happening. And the way that we interact with it is we bet on game outcomes with our virtual currency, and we vote at the end of every season on new rules that come into effect. Um, and they're very intentionally uh, obscure. It'll just be a short you know, title or sentence. You don't really know what that rule change is going to be. It's like, like one of them was like, open the forbidden book. And of course, everyone voted on that, but no one knew what was going to happen when you open the <laughs> forbidden book. And then you see what happens as a league. They introduce new rules. Things change. It's really absurd. Now, this is all done in Web 2, but our Nico and I's sort of pet hypothesis here is that this could be done in Web 3. Um, you would have to obscure the simulation with some sort of zero knowledge tech so that no one could see the simulation and tear it apart. Because then, to your point, it would be optimized by bots and you know people would figure it out. Um, but uh, I think there's something there. Um, so anyways, that, that's my tangent on Miles and fully on-chain games. You could probably yeah. add randomness to the simulation such that bots couldn't optimize it too much. And then... Sure. It's gambling, so that's okay, right? You just gamble against bots. Happens all the time. Um, yeah, you just need circuits to run the simulations because probably they're too complicated to run on-chain. Cool. Well, if someone wants to build that game with me on-chain, please reach out to me. Well, there is like a general point that is, I just feel confident that a lot of this stuff can be designed around. Like, uh, I, 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 think my, I think our preference would be to embrace the bots and design a game that accommodates them and that makes the game more interesting. Now, I acknowledge that's really easy to say. And will we get it right? Probably not. But I think it'll be fun for for people playing the game to see what happens. There will be drama and people will be pissed off and then they'll rally against the bots. And then maybe that is the game. And so I, I think that I really want to build something that feels different for players. I think the games industry is by and large pretty boring right now. I want to create a game experience that people 
haven't had before. Blazeball is a great example of a game that makes no sense, but it's fresh and it's different, and so people love it. And uh, you know, I, I'd be, I'd be willing to gamble with the fact that yeah, okay, we are allowing bots into the world, but you know, I pushed back against for twenty years or something. But here we're taking the opposite approach. Don't know what's going to happen, but it might be fun for us. Might be fun for the players to find out. So a bit of a glib response, but uh, it will feel different, right? One other skeuomorphic example of a game that I think makes a ton of sense on chain is management simulations. Um, and one example is like a sports management or sports team management. There's this company um, called Saya, and they have the game Soccerverse, which is a football manager that's entirely on chain. And you know, it 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 just it makes a ton of sense to me. Um, you know, football managers, there's not a lot of, of decisions, interactions, like half of, like, no, 90% of the game is just looking around and, 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 you know, looking at data, figuring out, like, what the best next move is, and then your moves are, oh, bench this player or buy that player, um, and that's pretty much it. So it feels like, you know, and, and this is one, as I said, skeuomorphic example, this works in Web2, right? Um, and it's just hard for me to imagine that there's not a bunch of non-skeuomorphic use cases of, in, in, like, of, of, Games that could exist that work perfectly um, in a Web3 setting. Mm -hmm. Will, um, before we started recording, you said you played Frentech and you had thoughts about UX. Yeah, just thinking about how we're going to onboard users into Web3. Because if these games are going to be successful, they're going to demand more from players than the Web 2.5 games that we've seen. Uh, so usually Web 2.5 games can abstract quite a bit. And my my thinking is that we're going to want people to have social login where people have game accounts that just kind of be a Facebook or Apple or their phone number or their email. Um, and at some point when they want to play something that changes the game state, they're going to need to start using private keys. Um, and they probably don't want to know that they're using private keys for a little while. Uh, and then we want to onboard them to the point where they custody their own keys and they understand what that means. Uh, and maybe they do that with recovery, the social recovery, uh, so that they can also not lose their keys with some service that will provide social recovery for them. And maybe they want even session keys where you use your private key to sign that for the next 30 minutes, all transactions are uh, approved. And I know that David has included this in his game. Uh, and or is planning to. And this is one of the biggest challenges, I think, for most fully on-chain game makers, is that it's actually not that hard to design a game and put its logic on-chain. It's really hard to make a user experience that's juicy, responsive, um, fun to engage with, and isn't hampered by all these stupid crypto things that we usually hamper people with. Um, yeah. Include, including crypto itself. Like, uh, I, I think, uh, so you're right, in our game, we do use a session key so that you don't have to, so the MetaMask doesn't pop up all the time and saying, do you want to do this, confirm this transaction? But also a concern I have is that if in order to start playing the game, you need to go and buy some Ethereum, well, then that's a tiny proportion of people that are comfortable doing that. I'm still not comfortable doing it. It's like, it's a real pain and I always worry about doing something wrong or send it to the wrong place. So I think that... Um, yeah, not only is it about not having MetaMask pop up, but not even having players not even having to worry about crypto, I think is important. 
Um, so, yeah, it's still... And what I would say sort of more opti optimistically is that you must have seen this, Will, that, that year on year that stuff gets better and there's more solutions for that. I think we are heading to a place where you could probably play an on-chain game and not have any clue that it is on-chain. Do you agree or not? Yeah, I think we're going to get there. And year on year it does get better, but it gets better at one-third the speed <laughs> that I keep <laughs> expecting from people. It's just bananas how slow we are to make this not painless. We've been talking about account abstraction for five years now, it seems like, and we're still not there, it feels. Yeah, and FriendTech didn't even use account abstraction. They used Shamir secret sharing. Like, their server has a shard of the key, you get a shard of the key on your device, and the shard of the key is in, like, an HSM that they also manage, right? And this has massive security flaws, but for the ease of use and the simplicity of the technology, it's a fair trade-off if you're not moving millions of dollars, like... Totally reasonable. Mm -hmm. You know, talking about UX and UI, David, can you maybe elaborate a bit on the system that you're building? And I'm also interested in how you're thinking about it when it comes to monetization and how do these two things tie into each other? Yeah, I mean, there's different types of UX. So Will's described, uh, let's call it the getting started UX, where, um, you, you know, you've got got to set up your wallet. You've got the Fatui. Uh, yeah, the Fatui, exactly. And, and But then there's another one, which is like, as you're playing the game, if every transaction that you're doing is writing that state to a blockchain, then before you really know whether or not that's happening, you have to wait two seconds. Like, blockchains are slow. I mean, there's a reason why they're slow. They're trying to get a consensus across all the nodes. To be, we all agree this happened. But as a result, the, intro, the user experience, if I click here and then there's a busy... Uh, uh, symbol for icon for a couple of seconds is terrible. Like that, we're used to milliseconds, right? Or very low ping times. And and so I think a lot of effort has to go into figuring out how to improve that UX for players. And it, for us, it meant doing some really low-level things like building our own indexer and building our own sequencer and then assuming that the player moves are correct uh, because they are 99% of the time, but rewinding on that 1% of the time when it turns out that we don't all agree that that player's made a valid mood. But you have to, the amount of effort. Now, I think we'll get to a point where that infrastructure is off the shelf and uh, we're starting to see that stuff already. But the current state of on-chain games is if you want to create a good, responsive user interface, then you have to build quite a lot of very low-level technology in order to make that a good player experience particularly you know an added layer of complexity is when you're doing that in a multiplayer environment as, as we are so you've got to it's not just has to verify that everybody else's moves around you also uh correct and moving the correct speed etc so there's a, just a ton of complexity and to be clear i don't think we got there yet you know will and i played through a, a game the other day and i think the thing that stopped it being fun was like it just wasn't responsive enough and you know you're used to mobile games or even online games that just have very very good ux which is just fun to interact with in and of itself before you even get to the game so i think that um you know you can have very great game mechanics that sound great on paper and will play great. But if you have a poor user experience, as most fully on-chain games do, frankly, then that really gets in the way of the player experience. So 
uh, it is an issue and you need to work hard in order to alleviate those problems. Mm -hmm. Good. Maybe... And, and the, go on. Uh, so you were going to ask about the monetization as well. So well, it's, it's, go ahead. yeah, maybe, maybe like, do you have something to add on, about that there? Yeah, I think that uh, the way that we're handling monetization is that um, players buy uh, um, you, um, energy from us, which gets spent in the game. And, and, and so one of the reasons why we've done that is it's quite a simple thing for people to understand. So it's a monetization model that we see in free-to-play games all the time where people pay for things that they want to do in the game and when they, um, or they can do some amount of things for free, some amount of things cost money. One of the things we can do with that monetization model is as, as players are spending money in the game, some of that is going behind the scenes being used to pay for gas. So we can sort of abstract away that crypto part where it's asking for Ethereum to pay for gas fees, and then we can uh, abstract away this thing of signing all the time by using session keys. So I think that we and other companies are finding ways of hiding some of the things that have created poor UX through the way that we choose to monetize or something like that. So that it feels like there are solutions and everybody's, we're at a point where everybody's trying different ideas. Nobody's you know, I found this in other things when I've done this in the past. I remember early days in mobile where everybody was trying different monetization ideas, different marketing ideas, and fast forward five years, everybody agrees this is the best way of getting that stuff done. But, uh, but we're still at a, a point in on-chain games where people are trying out ideas. I think when, when people can see one that definitely works, I think everybody else will ape in, which is what happened in, in mobile and PlayStation games before that. You raise a really interesting point there, David, around like people trying things out until they figure out like what's the sort of optimal model for the new platform, let's say, mm -hmm. um, because there's a there's a debate that I've observed. I'm sure you all have, too, within the on-chain gaming community where um, some builders believe we should be going for a bigger market um, gamers generally, let's say, and some believe, oh, we should only be focusing on crypto natives, on-chain gamers, people that understand this space. And it connects to your um, discussion around UX and education, right? Like if we're going for a broader market, um, we can assume that the average spend for players will be much lower, um, free to play, or like as you were describing for downstream, David, like you're paying for energy. So it's going to be like relatively small um, you know, total spend, let's say, in the beginning at least. Um, mm -hmm. And that comes along with a requirement for like low education. It should be easy to come in and pick it up and play uh, so that I am comfortable spending small amounts of money because that's what I want to spend. On the other side, if you're a crypto native, you understand this space, um, it might be a model where, okay, it's a little bit more high friction. It requires you to learn a little bit more about how this game works, what are the tokenomics like, so on and so forth. But the average contract value, the average spend per player might actually be much higher because they're comfortable with that uh, complexity and they're playing for higher stakes. So, you know, there's no right or wrong yet, but like these are two different approaches that I think are still being worked out in the community right now. Mm. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think some people are very happy building games for people like them that like crypto and care about that stuff. And there's other people, including me, that have an anxiety of just building a game for, uh, 
you're right, high spend maybe, but ultimately quite a small audience. Mm-hmm. I, I personally think there's something, there's an audience beyond the audience that we have today, well, obviously, but 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 also I think I'm thinking about this in a two-phase approach, which is that if I can make something that this group of people love, then I'll spend more time taking that game to a wider audience as a sort of phase two. That's my, our current thinking, I think. Yeah, and they don't have to be mutually exclusive either. Like in free-to-play games, there are plenty of people that spend thousands and thousands of dollars, and there's VIP programs attached to these games, and they have you know people like loyalty rewards and all these sort of things. So they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. It's just a it's a distribution, right? It's like a a power curve uh, where you've got a small fraction of, of people that are spending a lot of money, and then you have a huge sum of people that are spending a very tiny amount of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Good. Um, maybe final point from my end on that is is that, you know, as a venture investor, we look for unicorn style outcomes. And it's it's gonna be very hard to, you know, become a unicorn with a the the tiny niche that is even like web two plus games today. So every gamer that owns a wallet, even if you monetize those to the teeth or to the maximum, you might not still like you might still not breach the the amount of um, like the, the potential revenues that would warrant a unicorn style uh, outcome. So, you know, yeah, and, and and I've seen some people in the on-chain game space uh, see this as a reaction to a greedy games industry. You know, it's it, this is the to to me. I think it's I, I care about it because I think it's a good addition to an already interesting games industry, and we can create something new and interesting. And sure, it's a small audience now, but I think we can grow it in the future. But other people are here for very different reasons: building on-chain games and uh, don't like what they might see as greedy free-to-play overreach. And this is a way of bringing it back to the players or something. So it, it, I, I'm careful not to assume that all people's on-chain games motivations, on-chain game builders' motivations are the same. I think Will would agree with that. People doing it for different reasons. I'm sure you're finding that, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, and look, I agree that you probably couldn't get a venture-style return right now on the number of players in Web 2 and Web 3, Web 2.5 and Web 3, but, you know, Coinbase couldn't close on its Y Combinator demo day because people just thought, the crypto industry was too small for venture returns on an exchange, and yet it IPO'd like nine years later. Uh, so, uh, you know, very easy to sleep on this and the growing interest around crypto as it scales. I mean, it's anecdata, but kind of interesting. Yep. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Good. On that note, let's call it an episode. Um, maybe to end off, Matt, what's next on the dark tunnels? Newsletter. Yeah, so I'm trying to do a little bit of mental scheduling here when this will release versus when the newsletter is coming out. Mm. Um, but basically, we're in the middle of a multi-part series on business models, which we touched on a little bit here. The first part, uh, which should be in your inbox already, um, will have covered traditional um, games business models, free-to-play, premium box models, subscriptions, and so on. Uh, and then the next one will be about drawing inspiration from outside of games. Uh, so crypto native business models, open source software, uh, some other things like that. And then we'll eventually try and tie it all together and have some ideas about where this might go. So that's where we're heading in the short term with Dark Tunnels. And you should subscribe if you haven't already.
Amazing. Do so. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Matt, David, Will, thank you very much for joining. Listener, I hope you enjoyed as much as we did and I did speaking to these on-chain chats. Um, yeah, if you liked it, let us know. Um, if you want to hear more like this, let us know as well. And we look forward to speaking with you in the next episode. Ciao. Thank you, Nico.